Okay. The first scripture reading is Galatians three sixteen through 18. Now the promises were made to Abram and to his offspring. It does not say, and to the offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make it the, the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And the second reading is Genesis 22, 1 through 18. After these, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young, man, young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, so they both of them together. So they both went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they were both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket up by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall 
possess the gates of his enemies, and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we start a new series in the next five weeks, and today marks the first of a mini-tour through Scripture. In this, we are going to emphasize that all of this book, all of Scripture, is about the Jesus who has come and the Jesus that is coming again, the King who was promised to us and the King that is promised to return to reclaim his kingdom. This is what Advent is all about. And so we get this opportunity to look through Scripture for these next five weeks to do that. And we start with perhaps one of the most famous and dramatic stories of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. Now, if you've grown up hearing this story in church, you might have exclusively heard this story told to you as a moral tale, all right? Meaning, if you give God your most prized possession, if you sacrifice your idols on the altar, then God will bless you. Or perhaps you were told to imagine your greatest treasure that you have and place it on the altar and and you had to kill it in order for you to be considered a true Christian or a true believer. Like, have you ever been to like a youth retreat where they have like a campfire out in the last night and they make you grab like a piece of wood and they make you throw it in the fire and say like, I'm going to give up being mean. And then like two weeks later, (laughs) you know, they're inevitably mean again, right? Like, Like, it's often told, this story, as this moralistic tale of giving up your idols. What's misguided about that? There, there's, there's nothing wrong about considering what our idols are and, and how we are to give them up, but that, that's not the point of this story. Uh, the misguided nature of being told it that way is that it places you as the central character. You are Abraham. You are to do what Abraham did. And in that sense, you will have missed out on what's happening here. So uh, I'm just going to reveal this straight out of the gate. This story is ultimately not about us and what we give up, but this is about the faithfulness of God working through the faith of Abraham and Isaac. This is about the faithfulness of God working through the faith of Abraham and Isaac. Now, this is not to say that we aren't to glean some very important lessons. Uh, This story answers questions that is relevant to every age of God's people. And and those questions are not what idols I need to sacrifice or what do I treasure most in this life. Uh, as, As important as that question is, the question that this text is trying to answer is, is God going to be faithful to his promises? Does God keep his word? So today we're going to look at four critical things here that I hope will help unpack this story and reorient ourselves from maybe how we've heard it, Um, to to stop being this sort of self-centered, moralistic tale, instead framing it as a glorious God who is faithful. So four things today. We're going to talk about the faith of Abraham. We're going to talk about the faith of Isaac. We're going to talk about the faithfulness of God. And we're going to talk about the advent of Christ. The faith of Abraham, the faith of Isaac, the faithfulness of God, and the advent of Christ. So, let's just start by talking about the faith of Abraham here. And let's just start by, by kind of pointing out the trajectory of Abraham's life up until this point. Do you remember what Abraham was like prior to this story? Was this just sort of a stellar individual with an amazing track record of faith? Uh, no, no, not at all. He was a man perpetually trusting in himself, 
rather than the promises of God. He had tremendous fear of man issues. He would lie to kings about whether or not his wife was actually his wife on multiple occasions. He was doubtful of God's promises, so much so that when God literally sends him someone to say, you will bear a son, he laughs about it and tries to take matters into his own hands by having a child named Ishmael with his concubine, Hagar. A decision that would continue to have implications for the entire world and the foundations of the Islamic faith. So prior to our text in chapter 22, Abraham has just sent Hagar and Ishmael away. This son was not the promised son of Abraham. Far from it. This was Abraham who was trying to make the promises of God happen rather than trust that God would provide his wife Sarah a child. So Abraham has already lost one son because of his own disobedience. But sometime after that, God does give him a son. Gives him Isaac. God delivers on his promise despite Abraham's continual disobedience, his continual worry, his continual distrust. This promised child is the turning point for Abraham's faith. He starts realizing that the only constant in his life filled with disappointments and pains and trials that he brought upon himself was to turn and trust in the promises of God. Though he lacked faith every step of the way, God in his mercy and his kindness showed himself up in every single moment. It certainly wasn't the time that Abraham was expecting it to be shown to have a, have a son, but God kept his promises true. So now we get to chapter 22, our text that we just read today. And Abraham is this old man. He's grown in love with his son, Isaac, a young man at this point in the story. And he gets to see this blessing now, this covenant that God had made with Abraham, that he would be a blessing among the nations. His son is the catalyst for this. And, and through him, the people of God would be established. Through him, the nations of the world would be blessed. This young man would be the fulfillment of everything that God has promised up to his life. Abraham knows that God is faithful. And that's when the rug gets swept underneath Abraham. God comes into his life again testing him, not tempting him, not promoting Abraham to do evil, but testing his faith. God tells Abraham to take his promised son, the son that would be the promise of God himself, and sacrifice him. The tension in this verse, if you read it, is palpable. God, God when he commands Abraham, he really digs it in there. Look, look, at the, look, at, look at this text again. Take your son, okay, your only son, Okay, the one whom you love and sacrifice him. I mean, way to really pour in the salt there, God, right? Way to really ramp up the stakes. Why is God doing this? This has often been the most difficult passage to reason when we're trying to understand why is God asking Abraham to do this. Attempts have been made to try and understand the why as best, very speculative, and at worst points to God as a capricious, foolish God. Uh, some of them state that God is indeed advocating for child sacrifice, and in doing so contradicts his commandments against human sacrifices in later scriptures. Some try to maneuver around the issue 
by stating that God is not actually telling Abraham to kill Isaac. Abraham knows that this is sort of a wink-wink situation. So Isaac is not in actually any danger at all. They, they sort of punt. Uh, so how do we make sense of this? Um, to this, we have to state a couple of things right away to, to really feel the force of this passage as it was meant to be felt. It cannot be that Abraham had nothing to worry about in Isaac's life or the danger of losing his son. Uh, that would go against several realities that are happening here in this passage. One, uh, God never tells Abraham that Isaac would be spared prior to the sacrifice being offered. Uh, two, Abraham exhibits some strange behavior in the lead up to the sacrifice. Um, if you notice in the text, he chops the wood last when logically that should have been done first before he prepared for the journey. And scholars are, are pointing to the idea that the hesitancy to chop up the wood means Abraham is feeling incredibly anxious. Um, three, he is extremely obtuse with his son when his son is asking, hey dad, where's the sacrifice going to come from? Abraham doesn't have assurances that Isaac will be spared from the get-go. The biblical commentator Derek Kidner writes, Abraham's trust was to be weighed in the balance against common sense, human affection, lifelong ambition. In fact, Abraham's trust was to be against everything earthly. To remove the stakes of this passage right from the get-go would mean that Abraham wouldn't have to lean on anything except his confidence, his own knowledge. To know that God's plan was to redeem Isaac from the beginning would, would mean that he would not have to demonstrate any faith at all. So we know that that can't be it. However, on the flip side, this isn't a case where God is advocating for something that goes against his character when it comes to child sacrifice. God is not talking about the child sacrifice of Isaac as being one that will be acceptable in his sight. Rather, God is asking for Isaac to be redeemed in speaking of a principle that is later revealed in Exodus 22:29 and Exodus 34:20. If we could have that on the screen. They are to be redeemed. The firstborn sons belong to God himself, and they are to be redeemed through a sacrifice of an animal. God's progressive revelation reveals this principle about his character that no human sacrifice can be worthy enough for redemption in the Old Testament times. That a substitute, as we talked about last week, must take its place. Now, Abraham hasn't been revealed this principle about God. Nor understands, and as far as the story goes, how God is going to redeem Isaac. All he has is the call of God. The command of God and the choice. Abraham's faith challenges our very own. So let's just ask some personal questions here. Um, what does faith look like to you when you don't have all the answers? When you aren't revealed about everything about God and who he is? Will you still believe? Will you still trust? Will you still have faith in the unknown? Will you still step out in faith? Or will you only act with what you see in front of you? In many ways, this is a message that particularly those of us of the Reformed faith need to hear. 
We love the beauty and the unity and the harmony of the Reformed faith when it comes to the exposition of Scripture, the way it carefully navigates through the confusion and mystery and points us to Jesus. Amen to all of that. But the question for us remains, are we satisfied in the reality that there are some things this side of heaven that we just won't have the answer to? Will we still believe when our apologetics don't answer the questions we might have? Will we still trust when the circumstances of our life don't follow the neat and tidy answers of our theology? Is the God who is all-powerful, almighty, all-glorious in the world worthy if you're, of your praise even when we cannot fathom him? Will we trust in the commands of God when we don't have all the answers? I ask you all these questions because this is how Scripture defines faith. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. Abraham is asked to have a faith that would trust that God would be faithful to him, faithful to his promises in a situation where it almost seems impossible for God to be faithful to his promises. So how does Abraham respond? He goes. And for three days, he travels 50 miles Three long days. If you've ever had to wait for something dreadful to arrive, you might know what this is like. Um, kids, if you've got a bad report card and you're holding it in your hand as you're on the bus ride home, what are you feeling, right? Dread, right? What is on your mind in the entire time that you're waiting for something bad to happen? Can you even enjoy anything? Three whole days in Abraham's mind, Isaac is dead. And yet, Abraham still heads to Mount Moriah. Abraham still obeys. He's demonstrating in his anxiety, in his silence. He is demonstrating obedience in the face of all that God has claimed to promise. Abraham, in this passage, is a changed man. He doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't laugh in the face of God's promises. He doesn't need to lie about what is about to occur. He doesn't require all the answers. He puts out his faith forward. And he goes. Now, this isn't a faith that is not without issues, mind you. Um, you know, sometimes we're told that faith is this unwavering boldness to believe in everything. And if you even have a shred of anxiety or a shred of doubt, then it's not true faith. Abraham's faith is an obedience even when you don't have the confidence to carry it through. Faith is not about the trust in our own understandings, Right? but the Lord directing our paths, even if it's a path that we don't wish to go on. We might even wish to say that the truest sign of faith is moving forward not when we are assured, but when we're worried, when we're troubled, when we're anxious. Faith that perseveres through our doubts is greater than a faith that is proud and believes that nothing can shake it. So in this way, I'm trying to encourage us by the pathway that many Christians are taking uh, nowadays in reconstructing their faith. Uh, now, Christian reconstruction is not what you think it is, as though they are s discovering some brand new gospel. Uh, if you're not familiar with this term, this has become really popular over the last five, six years now. Uh, Christian reconstruction is about those who grew up in a Christian environment, in Christian families, and those who simply just assumed their Christianity and realize their faith has been challenged in such a way that they're realizing whether or not they truly believed what they believed. So they're going back and parsing out what they were told when they were younger and seeing if it lined up 
with the truth of Scripture. They are deconstructing that which was culturally tied to unbiblical ethics in their family through moralistic therapeutic deism or deconstructing their faith from Christian nationalism or, and reconstructing their faith to a biblical, historic, confessional Christianity. Um, let me be clear here because this is a muddled term nowadays. There are some who are reconstructing their faith into what I would call secular syncretism meaning that they are trying to make their faith palatable with postmodern ethics and the removal of objective truth. That is not reconstruction. That, that kind of reconstruction fails because it's not founded upon God's word. It's, it's founded upon cultural acceptance. Um, that kind of reconstruction will only deconstruct itself again and again as the moral tide of Western ethics and scholarship becomes the new form of colonialism. A colonialism that tells other nations that their cultural understandings of manhood and womanhood are wrong, and that only a Western view is correct. A colonialism that tells other nations what true prosperity is, as though materialism or self-actualization is the path to happiness. Reconstruction without the word of God is a gospel of works with no hope at all. A true reconstruction. Where, where, where I'm hopeful, where, where I'm encouraged, is people asking themselves the question of what did God say? What did God promise? How do we re- return to the foundation of the word of God and his truth for all times? That could be you right now in the season of life. And maybe you're wondering if you believe in Christ the same way that you did several years ago. Maybe you're, you're feeling as though the introduction of doubt means that you never really had faith to begin with. Maybe you were told as a young person that doubt, doubt is unhealthy, that, that true Christians should never question. Let me encourage you, if that's you today, like Abraham, like David in the Psalms, like those who came to Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief. If this is you, you're in good company. Because it means that maybe for the first time, you are realizing that it's not about how strong you are or how spiritual you need to look. It's about how strong God's promises are leading you to trust in Him and knowing that God will carry you even if He hasn't told you exactly what that looks like yet. That's faith. So now in talking about Abraham's faith, we also have to talk about here about Isaac's faith. Now, this isn't normally what we talk about when we discuss this passage, but there are several things to really consider in this story that points to a faith in his father's plan. The first thing that we notice is that Isaac, who's the son of the nations, and he, and he knows this, Abraham's been telling him this, is carrying the wood for sacrifice knowing that there is no sacrifice present. He even asked his dad a clarifying question just to make sure he isn't missing anything. Isaac is, is fully aware that there's no other sacrifice available other than A, his dad, or B, him. And spoiler alert, Abraham has already said, God will provide the sacrifice, my son. So, uh-oh, okay. What makes this response, by the way, from Abraham even crazier is when you consider that grammatically, biblical Hebrew doesn't have commas, that sentence could mean, God will provide the sacrifice, my son, or God will provide the sacrifice, my son. Abraham's dad mind trick game is on an elite level here with his son here, okay? This is not a promise to take your kid to Disneyland and trick him to going to the dentist. This is letting Isaac stew on the sentence and its meaning. 
The very ambiguity and the obtuseness of Abraham's response leads for Isaac to continue the journey in complete silence. He doesn't ask any follow-up questions. Now, some of us might call this naive faith, immature faith, and there's, there's probably some truth to that. But Isaac, if you were more wiser and if he knew what was going to happen, he might have responded differently, we might say. So again, the question falls on us. How many of us in Isaac's shoes would have continued forward? How many of us are asking Abraham, Dad, uh, you know, you're removing my agency here as a child, and uh, this is a little crazy, and for those reasons, I'm out, you know, like Shark Tank style, right? Like, Isaac doesn't do that here. He has a childlike faith, trusting in his father. He goes, knowing the covenant promises of God that have been told to him. He carries the very tools of his death, the wood on his shoulders, and heads up the mountain. And in case there was any doubt about Isaac's compliance here, Abraham binds up Isaac and places him on the altar. How old is Abraham here in this passage? Pushing a hundred. Isaac is a young man who just carried a bunch of sacrificial wood up a mountain. If Isaac didn't wish to be bound up, who do you think would win that fight? Do you think Abraham could have forcefully placed Isaac there? No, Isaac knowing that his father is trusting in the Lord, maybe even in extreme anxiety, sees his father's faith and follows him. Isaac gives himself up to the will of the father. Isaac trusts in his father's God. Isaac believes that the Lord in that moment where he is the victim of this testing, where he's placed in the situation of greatest harm, that the Lord will be faithful and true no matter what the outcome. Isaac's faith takes the road of greatest difficulty and goes where only faith can travel. Last week, uh, I talked about blind optimism. This week, it's the pessimist's turn for a light rebuke. As I recall, it was only Josue and myself that were the blind optimists. Uh, so I might find myself in trouble here after this message, but I will preach on because I cannot change my optimism that this might be good for us to hear. If blind optimism is contrary to Christian hope, then blind pessimism is contrary to Christian wisdom. Wisdom is not the ability to see what is difficult and hard in front of you and avoid it. That's not wisdom. That's just negativity. Charles Spurgeon famously quoted said that the easiest work in the world is to find fault. Wisdom, especially Christian wisdom, sometimes is flying in the face of dire consequences that are directly in front of you and face them, then challenge it, like Isaac, to go forward in obedience despite the dangers that we allow to cloud our minds, that we allowed to control our judgments. Wisdom is trusting that God knows best. Wisdom is going in the direction that has dependency upon God to provide and God to act. A plan without any room for God to work is not a plan from the Lord at all. A plan that prevents you from getting hurt and facing possible rejection or difficulty will lead to a fruitless life. Probably my favorite C.S. Lewis quote is the one that speaks about the reality of living in the face of difficulty and trials. And we can get that on the screen here. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. 
If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in a safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Isaac's faith is facing the danger of following his father, even to the risk of his own self. But he goes because faith that never goes to hard places can never be true faith at all. As Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So let me just say something to our covenant children here today. Um, Kids, look at me. I know I've been talking for a long time. I know I've been using weird words like reconstruction and syncretism, but I need your attention right now. Um, As far as and as best as I can understand, I'm one month in, you've got some incredible parents who love Jesus. To be sure, they are messed up people, right? Parents, can I get an amen? All right, see? They're honest messed up people, right? Uh, They have sins that they're working through in their life. They are not perfect, and I'm sure you, as children, can tell me the most about that. Uh, But as far as I can tell, your parents want you to understand that God is a good and gracious God. That God is so faithful that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins. That Jesus rose again to show his power over Satan's sin and death. And that you can trust this God with your life. You can follow your parents like Isaac followed his messed up dad, Abraham. But Isaac saw that God changed Abraham's life to trust in God's promises. And I hope that as you grow up, you will see how God has changed your parents too. For all of us, when we see the faith of Isaac and the faith of Abraham, we will begin to suddenly see the faithfulness of God at work. A true faith and trust in God will always lead to redemption. And we see clearly in the story what happens next. Abraham lifts his knife, the knife that would be used for gory sacrifices. He would envision Isaac as dead in this moment. And God sends redemption right then, at the moment of certain tragedy. God's mercy triumphs over judgment. God's grace conquers the grave. And God himself makes atonement. You know, we often overlook the fact that a ram was given over as a sacrifice. But what do we discover about rams later on in Scripture? Uh, When rams are used for sacrifices, they are always in regards to a priest making atonement for sins. The highlight of this being the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur in the Jewish tradition, when a ram was given up for the sins of all the people. The ram that was also, by the way, caught in a thicket here. A thicket that would have trapped his horns on his head with thorns and brambles. So this ram had a crown of thorns. The ram was given everything that Isaac was supposed to receive. The ram uh, was a reward for Abraham's faith and Isaac's faith. 
a faith that was weak, shaky, naive, and at times in Abraham's history, a complete mess. God in his faithfulness worked through the imperfect faith of Abraham and the complicated faith of Isaac. Ultimately, it was God himself who carried both Isaac and Abraham to this moment. That in his faithfulness, he would not only provide salvation, but the incredible promise that he would bless Abraham and his family because of their obedience. That this moment now, we see this full maturation of Abraham as a character in Scripture. God's faithfulness now building, at the end of his life, a faith that could withstand even the most unthinkable of commands. That Abraham could look back on everything and realize that the Lord did provide. And so what does he name the mountain? I did it. I did the hard thing. No. He names the mountain, the Lord will provide. To remind himself, to remind every generation that would come after him, all the sons of Abraham, you and me, that the Lord remains faithful and is continuing to be faithful to you right now. So it should be no secret then how we conclude our time here in this final point. There is no major secret reveal about how all of these events point to the advent of Christ like some sort of mystery movie. The coming of Christ is right in plain sight, isn't it? It's just in almost every single verse here in our text. The command of God the Father who loves his Son to offer as a sacrifice. The three days in which the Son is dead. The Son who carries the instrument of sacrifice, the cross which was laid upon him. The willing Son Though powerful enough to break the cross and leave it, remains on it, accepting death on behalf of all of Abraham's chosen seed. The crown of thorns, the thicket that he bore as a son, was sacrificed on behalf of all of us. The metaphorical resurrection of Isaac from the dead is the, is the true resurrection of Christ on the third day. Even the location. Do you know where Mount Moriah is? Mount Moriah, as we'll later see, is right in view of Calvary, where the Lamb of God was slain for the sins of the world. The promise of the Lord providing for his people, ultimately revealed in the coming of Christ in that manger, the advent for us as his people, waiting for his coming again while we find ourselves placing our faith as imperfect and as frail as it can be, weak and naive as it is, our faith on the faithfulness of God who has kept all of his promises are yes and amen because he is faithful to do it. Advent, this season that we're in, is resting on the true hope that we have in Christ. The hope that has been revealed in all of Scripture right from the beginning of Genesis. The hope that we carry as we journey through unspeakable pain and trauma and anxiety. The hope that redeems us when we feel like all hope is lost. So Advent, in the songs we sing, the decorations, the presents, they point to a greater reality of future blessing and provision that only the coming of Jesus Christ can provide. Advent is faith in the promises of God as our only hope. God will provide. And as we continue our tour in Scripture next week, Advent is knowing that the coming King is right around the corner. So let's trust in Him. Let's pray together.